We're in Numbers chapter 7 tonight. I've added a perfection to the, the sermon title. In the bulletin it says, um, The Religious Duty of Leaders, which is why we read from the Fifth Commandment, um, 129. And the perfection is the holiness of God and the religious duty of leaders. All right, Numbers 7. It's a lengthy chapter. I think, what do we have, 89 verses, something like that? All right, um, right. Verse 1, hear God's holy word. Now on the day that Moses had finished setting up all the tabernacle, he anointed it, consecrated it with all its furnishings in the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's household, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts, twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and an ox for each one, And they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. Moses took the carts and the oxen, gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they carried on the shoulder. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed, so the leaders offered their offering before the altar. Then the Lord said to Moses, Let them present their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. Now the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. On the second day, Nathanael, the son of Zuar, leader of Issachar, presented an offering. He presented as his offering one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, According to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. On the third day was Eliab, the son of Helon, leader of the sons of Zebulun. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, 
one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Helam. On the fourth day, it was Elizor, the son of Shedur, leader of the sons of Reuben. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Elizor, the son of Shadur. On the fifth day, it was Shalumile, the son of Zereshaddai, leader of the children of Simeon. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Shel Umiel, the son of Zereshaddai, and it was on the sixth day of Elisaph, the son of Duel, the leader of the sons of Gad. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, <clears throat> one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Elisaph, the son of Duel. On the seventh day, it was Elishama, the son of Aminihub, leader of the sons of Ephraim. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering and for the sacrifice of peace offerings to oxen, five rams, five male, male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Elishama, the son of uh, Amihud. On the eighth day, it was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, leader of the sons of Manasseh. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. On the ninth day, it was Abidan, the son of Gideonai, the leader of the sons of Benjamin. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, 
according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Abidan, the son of Gideonai. On the tenth day, it was Ahizer, the son of Ami Shaddai, the leader of the sons of Dan. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Ahizer, the son of Amishaddai. On the 11th day, it was Pajiel, the son of Akron, the leader of the sons of Asher. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Pajiel, the son of Akron. On the twelfth day, it was Ahira, the son of Enon, the leader of the sons of Naphtali. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, <clears throat> one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, Two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. <clears throat> this was the offering of Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver dishes, twelve silver bowls, twelve golden pans, each silver dish weighing 130 shekels, each bowl 70. All the silver of the utensils was 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 86 12 gold pans full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold of the pan, pans, 120 shekels, all the oxen for the burnt offerings, 12 bulls, all the rams, 12, male lambs, one year old, with a grain offering, 12, the male goats for a sin offering, 12, all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls, all the rams, 60, the male goats, 60. The male lambs, one year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spoke to him. Whew. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, every bit of it. Holy Spirit, you inspired all of it. Um, all of the repetition comes from your divine mind. I pray that 
you would be with me in my thoughts, in my words. Everything, Lord, would be governed by you. Put away my sin, especially foolishness. May the words of my lips and meditation of my heart uh, be pleasing to you according to your scripture. May I rightly divide this word of truth to your glory, almighty God, and to the feeding of your sheep. And as always, Lord, if there are any who ever hear my words, the words of this sermon, who are unconverted, might you convert them, Lord, even from such a passage. In Christ's name, amen. My friend who's preaching um, the book of Acts that we met on Friday together and we were just kind of talking shop as ministers do. They talk shop when they get with other ministers. I said, what are you preaching in morning? What are you preaching in evening? Since he's OP, they still have evening service. And he told me his, I told me mine. He said, numbers, numbers. How are you preaching numbers? He asked me, did you just skip over the first 10 chapters and jump into... I said, no, I'm not that, that wise. We're trying to... He said, how are you doing it? I said, I don't know how I'm doing it. So um, this, is, uh, this is probably one of the lengthiest, lengthiest chapters I think I've come across. I know there are a few chapters in the book of Luke. You've got like 67, 75. This is a long one, 89. This chapter, what I just read, everybody was probably wanting to go out for a coffee break by the time I finished... This is one of the reasons that people are tempted to skip over the book of Numbers. We've already hit stuff like this. The first couple chapters are census, various forms of census. There's the military census. Then there's the census for the the, the priesthood and all of the names. Uh, There is an elder in the Tallahassee church. He pronounces these names you would think that his name was Shecky Greenstein. He preaches them perfectly. Of course, I don't know if it's perfectly pronounced, but I butcher everything. This is why you think, you know what, maybe we should skip to, um, to chapter 11. It's the redundancy. And the same thing is when you run across, let's say, uh, genealogies. Uh, think of Matthew chapter 1. And such and so begat such and so, and such and so, such and so. And for us as moderns, since our attention span is, what, about three seconds because of all the foolish TV and the foolish phones, and we need everything to be cocoa and, and something quicky-quick. So you come to something that requires a, a little bit of uh, effort, and we think, you know what, this is, we've got to move on to the show. We'll watch the cartoon version of this. But God the Holy Spirit obviously inspires. So everything is written for our instruction. So when you come here, clearly the, the redundancy of the offerings, you think, Okay, 130 shekels, and I know what's coming next. 70 shekels, and the five this, and the five that. So when God the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write this, and he wrote this, it's God, it comes from the mind of God to put in all of this redundancy. And the redundancy or the repetition makes us think like this is meaningless, but it's meant for the exact opposite. Um, My parents didn't often repeat themselves You'd have a couple of shots of like them repeating. And then my mother was tiny. She would be like Bolero. And then my father would chime in who wasn't tiny. So they would have an exclamation point to their repetition if you went too long. But when God repeats something, it's like our parents when they were repeating something. It's because this is a very, very important point. 
the, the, um, when I was first converted, I sought out, by God's grace, two older men to teach me the faith. And I remember one of the older men, who was actually a liberal Christian, and I didn't understand this at the time, he said to me, Jack, back home I'm called Jack, when you find God repeating himself, you need to take your pen and pencil out because he means he's making emphasis. And so all of the various repetition, it's teaching us. Now, what is it teaching? If you know the Bible, particularly what New Testament book would best explain what we just read? What New Testament book would best explain what we just read? If you said the book of Hebrews, you're exactly right. The book of Hebrews explains or exegetes the Old Testament ceremonial law, which is what this is. This is an expression of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is the gospel in type and shadow. And so if you want to look at a, a, a good place to study this idea of the ceremonial law, Hebrews, obviously, but then in chapter 7 of our confession, paragraph 4 and 5, we'll, and read the scripture proofs, you'll get a good handle on this. Now, with all of the various repetition, uh, it has to be silver, it has to be gold, and you have to have this kind of critter, and it's got to be a year old, it's got to be spotless, and it's got to die. And we're going to consecrate the tabernacle, which is where God puts, puts his holy presence and his holy name. What is the one overarching truth that this 80, 89 verses are teaching essentially one point, which is what the angels were flying around the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 and in, in, in Revelation chapter 5. They're repeating Isaiah chapter 6. What did the holy angels fly around Christ, uh, God's throne? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That's this. That's this. That's why I perfected the sermon. There are two doc- doctrines primarily taught by this passage. My wife said, are you going to preach more than one sermon on this? I said, are you out of your mind? No, hopefully I can just get through this with one, with one sermon. But it teaches two truths, one primary and the other secondary or supportive. The primary doctrine that's being t- taught is the holiness of God. That's what's going on here. God is holy. All of these things, the tent, the equipment, the, 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 the uh, altar, the animals, the oblations, the sacrifices, they're all being consecrated as holy to a holy God so us unholy sinners can be made holy to dwell with holy God. That's the primary truth. The secondary or supporting truth is the, the religious duty of the leaders. These 12 leaders are tasked by God to be faithful to God on behalf of their particular tribes. And so we're going to look at their fidelity, the fidelity of the religious leader, which is why we read from the fifth commandment. I love the, the larger catechism. The shorter catechism is, is the most concise summary of theology, Bible theology. Um, the larger is phenomenal. It, it really extrapolates, especially if you're, if you're studying the Ten Commandments. Larger catechism question um, 99 will really help you understand the Ten Commandments. And then obviously I'm for studying these. But when we, we read the Fifth Commandment or the, uh, the duties required by the Fifth Commandment, that's what we're going to look at with these 12 uh, religious leaders, these 12 chieftains or tribal leaders. Let me back up a little bit and give us the setting. The setting is very informative for us. The book of um, Exodus. So if you know your Bible, the book of Exodus actually gives us the historic setting of what we're looking at in the book of Numbers. 
also if you know your Old Testament um, Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9 also talk about what we're talking about tonight in the book that I just mentioned that explains the ceremonial law the place where we really see the ceremonial law fleshed out in the Old Testament is the book of Leviticus Hebrews helps us understand Leviticus the bulls and the goats are pointing forward to the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. How blessed are those who found in Christ. To paraphrase the church of my youth. Um, okay, so the particular setting, you know the book of Numbers, it begins with year two. It's like the first day of the first month on the second year of their emancipation or liberation. So they're two years freed. How long was Israel slave? 430 years. So for 430 years, they cried, oh, God, save us. And God heard them after 430 years. He sends Moses, his type of deliverer. He leads them out of bondage. He brings them into the wilderness. We're two years into the wilderness journey. And we've got, um, so the book of Numbers runs from year two to year 38 and gets us right on the, what side of the the Jordan, uh, gets us onto the eastern side of the Jordan River just before they enter into the promised land, which is Canaan. So the book of Numbers is essentially the record of God um, being with his people in the wilderness, which is really informative. And I know we're just looking at it somewhat thematically, but God is telling his people, I freed you from slave slavery. After slavery, you're a pilgrim. At the end of your pilgrimage, you're going to go home to the promised land. Beloved, what does that scheme sound like to you? That's the scheme of every Christian. I saved you from sin and the bondage of the devil. I set you free to be my my freed children. And for the remainder of your life upon the earth, you're going to be a pilgrim. And then where will we go when our pilgrimage is over? Hebrews 11 and 12. We go home to the celestial city, to the promised land. So this typifies or foreshadows that which is normative in the, in the spiritual life of the Christian. But what the book of Numbers is telling the pilgrim, us, God is with us every step of the way. God freed us by his mighty hand. We didn't free ourselves. And God is with us in the wilderness. And one of the things that the book of Numbers will teach is, and this is very, we're very grateful for this, and I'll paraphrase the Puritans, you can't sin away the grace of God in Christ. If people could lose their salvation, the Jews would have lost it a thousand times over. And if, the, if we could lose our salvation, the Christians would lose it 10,000 times over. Um, you, you would lose it. God never takes away the love that he first gives. Now, a better part of the Jews, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, didn't have faith. But when you have true faith, God's not going to leave you in the wilderness even when you're um, sinning. So that's the historical context. So if you get a chance to read, it's Exodus 40. Leviticus 8, Leviticus 9. Um, the, the way that I would study the Old Testament is I'd studied it looking through the New Testament um, uh, lenses. And so I will generally tell young, younger Christians who don't know the Bible as well, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like 40, 50 times. And then when you get that under your belt, read the book of Romans 40 or 50 times. I'm not even kidding. Then you can... Then you can go back to the Old Testament and hopscotch around, and then you can go to further books in the, in the New Testament. Get the Gospels down. The book of Romans is sometimes called the fifth, fifth Gospel. Once you get Christ, 
Once you understand Christ, then you come to the Lamb of God, the scapegoat. Then you come to the Passover Lamb. You go, ah, there it is. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking at. Now, I mentioned the two doctrines that I aim to look at. There are a number of ways that you could legitimately um, flesh out this passage. I think if I had to do it over again, I'd just change everything and I'd read one verse, verse 89, maybe the summary before 89, and preach the mercy seat. But that's, uh, I digress. So all of these various things that we're looking at teaches the holiness of God, which I would argue... It's, I feel bad for anyone that comes to church because when I make maybe critical comments on the church, I'm not making critical comments on you because I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> the better part of the American church has no fear of God before their eyes. They've lost the idea of God's holiness. So they say to us who believe in things like this, the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, all of these various things, they say, well, your, me, your view of God is, is mean, is vitriolic, it's somehow, it's unloving. You know, that, that, that's not true. It's not that the, 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 the casual Christian has a higher view of the love of God. They have a lower view on the holiness of God. Does that make sense? They don't have a God of greater love. They have a God who is no God of diminished holiness. Their God is not a holy God. It's just a figment of their own imagination. When you come to this passage, it is, why, why all the offerings? Why all the propitiation? Why, why does everything have to be exact and have to be perfect and have to be according to God's design? Because God's holy. And no one will approach him but by propitiation, but by atoning sacrifice. You're just not going to do it. Sinful man does not biddy-bop into the presence of holy God and say, I'm here. You can take whatever slop I give to the holy God and you're just going to totally love it and totally accept me. That's not a reading of the Old Testament. That's not a reading of the New Testament. That's a trampling on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is not coming and giving to God what man wants. God says, you will come and bring what I want or I won't accept you. And it is a frightening way to, 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 to look at God if particularly you were raised with a steady diet of the other. I was just talking uh, to uh, a young brother in the Lord on these things, and he said, this is way harder. This is a way different view of God than I was raised with. And I genuinely felt bad. I genuinely felt bad. And I said, well, brother, I don't mean to, to be overly critical, but you've been raised with a false form of Christianity. We have a new uh, uh, denominational magazine on the, on the foyer, and it has some articles by the founder of the OPC, Machen. He wrote a book, um, um, Christianity and Liberalism. And he essentially says liberal, it means liberal Christianity. He says it's not Christianity because there's no holiness. There's no need for this perfect sacrifice. It's just be good. And even George Whitfield in the 1700s said, George Whitfield in the 1700s says, what passes for preaching in most Christian pulpits, Whitfield says, is mere heathen, Christless morality. 1700s, George Whitfield. There's no holiness. It's just be goodism. And he says it's heathenish because there's no Christ to appease the holy God. That's what this passage teaches. 
And it's type and shadow, I realize. And you say, where are you getting that? Because I know the book of Hebrews. And you're looking, behold the Lamb of God, John 1, 29, take it away the sins of the world. That's Christ. That's, that's Exodus chapter 12 and 13. It's Leviticus chapter 16. Christ is the Passover, 1 Corinthians 5. The New Testament clearly says it. We're not making this up. So if we know our Bibles, this is what this is teaching. And without these sacrifices, God is so holy that man would never approach. Man could never be in the presence of Almighty God, not the reconciled presence. Hell is the presence of God, but it's an unreconciled, unfriendly, holy, but just and wrathful presence. When we talk about being in the presence of God, we ordinarily mean by default in the friendly, reconciled presence of God. Um, sometimes people say hell is where God is not. That's not true. God is in hell. God is omnipresent. He can't not be anywhere. He, he is everywhere. But in hell, it's his unreconciled, wrathful presence. But when we talk about being in the presence of God, we mean reconciled, friendly, peaceable, loving, that kind of thing. No man, apart from, from the offerings being offered for their sin, can dwell in the presence of Almighty God. He'll be chaff. Read Psalm 1, Psalm 2. You, you'll be swept away. And because God is that holy. I think if we, even as Christians who maintain the holiness of God, if we could maybe grow in our sense of the holiness of God, not that we would cringe in servile fear before a holy God, but boy, we would tremble with some reverential awe in the presence of this holy God, would we not? So this is teaching us that apart from th- these atoning sacrifices, um, man could not approach God. But what the sacrifice teaches, which is what's in- so encouraging, not only is this God a God of blinding holiness, but what does God giving all of these various propitiating, atoning sacrifices signify that he wants to be approached. That he wants to be approached. When someone reads the Bible without faith, they come to this conclusion, well, boy, the God of the Bible is kind of a mean God. He's an angry God. Well, you could come to that conclusion if you have no faith because you're biased and prejudiced against the author. But the moment that you're converted to Jesus Christ really and truly, I mean really and truly born again by the Holy Spirit, our heart is subdued to King, to King Christ. So now where we were once prejudiced against God because we didn't understand, we now are, are for God, we're pro-God. And so we look at these things and say, where you see only wrath, we see what? But I've made a way. All of these sacrifices by which man could come into the presence of God shows us that God wants to be known by man. This is mystery of mysteries. It's not a mystery that unbelieving man would be damned. That's not a mystery. We're all legalists by nature. And it's, it's not a mystery that people that sin deserve the wages of sin. That's not mysterious to us. That grace is the thing that's mysterious to us. Mercy is more mysterious to us. People are naturally, as I say, uh, legalists. They, they, you've done a bad thing, then you deserve five stripes. That, that makes sense to us. But it's the mercy, it's the provision of the sacrifice for the sinner to be in the presence of the Holy God. That's the thing that's stunning to us. Uh, men would never develop, men would never develop the religion of the Bible. The religion of man is not this. What is the religion of man? It's like Islam. 
or, or a corrupted form of Christianity. It's just law. It's law. You do a bad thing, you have to do a good thing. That kind of a thing. You do a bad thing, you need to be punished. But God comes along and says, no, with these prescribed offerings, I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me in reconciled relationship. So, yes, God is holy, but God, by means of these various sacrifices, which are typological of Christ, shows us that sinful man, as unholy as we are, we can be made holy by virtue of the sacrifice. And again, as I say, these things are just types and shadows of Christ. The holiness, we are called saints. I've mentioned before I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and so in Roman Catholic Church, you become canonized or made a saint after the Pope and the Magisterium vote on you. You need certain levels of miracles and stuff that they can attribute to you and all of these various things, which is not true, but it's what they say. And so then you would call St. Patrick, St. Margaret, uh, Padre Pio, St. Padre Pio, uh, all of these things. And I remember my dad would mock me. He said, so should I call you St. Jack? Are you St. Jack? Well, beloved, God the Holy Spirit calls us saints. To the saints of God in Philippi, to the saints of God in Corinth, to the saints of God in the Galatian churches, to the saints of God. People can mock all you want, but the word saint means holy one. And you see why people would think, oh, so you're the holy one? I know you. You're the guy I dragged out of the bushes. Are we holy? Yeah. How are we made holy? Let's be precise. In justification, our holiness is imputed, legitimized. It's forensic. It's legal. That's external. It happens once. Whammo, righteous, holy. And then in our progressive sanctification, it's not imputed. It's infused. We die to sin. We grow in righteousness. So both holiness, both in a justification sense and in a sanctification sense, they're gifted. One is imputed and the other is infused. It's real, practical. Yeah, we're holy. By God's grace. So this is what all of these various sacrifices are teaching. Especially we know this is true in verse 89. The mercy seat. So the mercy seat was essentially what? It's a piece of furniture. So the tabernacle is a tent which is being consecrated. All of the furniture in the tent is being consecrated. Some of your texts may say consecration. Mine says consecration. Some of your versions may say dedication. That underlying word for consecration and dedication is the, the Hebrew word Hanukkah. This is where I grew up with tons of Jewish folks, and they would celebrate Hanukkah. That word consecration or dedication is Hanukkah. So we dealt with the Nazarites dedicating themselves, consecrating themselves, holy service to a holy God. And so the tabernacle is being consecrated, made holy according to God's ceremony to a holy God. All of the furniture, Hanukkah, consecrated, dedicated, made holy, put into holy use that we could be made holy to dwell with our holy God. That's, that's what's going on here. And the mercy seat is just one of those pieces of equipment or furniture in, in, the, uh, in, the, um, in the tent, the tabernacle. What's the, the tabernacle? 45 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet high. It's a big, long, square, rectangular tent. In a little portion of the holiest of holies, they would stick the Ark of the Covenant, which was a wooden box overlaid with gold. Inside of the box was what? 
the law of God. Over the box was what? The mercy seat. Remember I said the Bible, the religion of the Bible is a religion of, of grace, of mercy. Luke 6, our God is kind and merciful and gracious to what kind of people? The only kind of people that exist. Evil. Evil. Evil people. Jesus is in the saving evil people business and making us hagios, kakos, evil, to hagios, holy, mercy seat. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. When was the day of atonement? Was it, was it Friday night, Saturday night here? Am I right? I think it was. Yom Kippur? Am I right, Jim? I think it was. And in some Orthodox communities, they take a chicken, they go down in the bed, in the basement, they wring its neck. The problem is you can't make up your religion. God doesn't say go kill a chicken in your basement and it toes for sin because you're not a priest. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. And God didn't say chicken, did he? He didn't. But it's man-made. And so that mercy seat is showing us that we're all lawbreakers. The high priest goes on the day of Yom Kippur covering and sprinkles it, Hebrews says what? Christ. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the lamb. Christ is Yom Kippur. All of that. And so we're made holy in him. Now, let's spend like five to eight minutes talking about the various religious duties of these leaders. These leaders are being called by God through one leader, servant leader, which is Moses, And these other fellows represent the 12 chieftains, as I'll call them. Some places in the Bible refer to the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes as chieftains. These are the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, essentially. That's what we're being taught. And so these particular fellows are going to offer up religious service um, on behalf of the tribes they represent, but unto God. I want to mention... I have a whole section. It will be in my notes, but I don't want to preach it now because I'm going to go way too long. The whole principle of representative government in Christ's church, it was one of the reasons I'm a Presbyterian, but I don't want to get diverted on that. The principle of representation by a representative is foundational to the Christian religion of the Bible. First Adam, second Adam, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, first and second, first and last. Adam represents all men descending from him by ordinary generation. Jesus Christ represents all those given to him by the counsel of redemption uh, from eternity, the elect representation. And then God speaks to his people via a representative prophet, a representative priest. Now these people, uh, the 12 tribes, are being represented by these 12 leaders. Even the church in heaven, the glorified church, what is it? Oh, come on, Johnny boy. Uh, Revelation 19, somewhere thereabouts. It will be the 12 names of the 12 on the glorified church, the 12 leaders of of Israel, and the 12 uh, apostles. It's that representative government. So God appoints the representative. They stand for the people. Now, I want to mention the infidelity of religious leaders just very briefly and they will jump into the faithfulness of these 12 guys. Why are these guys, why is everyone here in the book of Numbers, why are they on a 40-year hike to begin with? 
It's because of the infidelity or the faithfulness of 12 representative leaders. Remember the guys? There were 12 spies that were appointed one for each tribe and they were going to represent their tribe to spy out the land because God said, take the land. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to go in and drive out the Canaanite with a war. I'll give you victory. So one spy for each tribe and 10 of the spies came back and said, don't do it. God says, do it, but don't do it. And then what did God do to the entire body? Or let's call them the church. Their representatives sinned and they paid the price. So they are here in the book of Numbers for 40 years because of the infidelity of their appointed religious leader. So all of us as moms and dads to, to, to some degree, let's say Christian mom, Christian dad, where we are, we are religious leaders. This is true for a, a husband or a wife. So the husband, a believing husband, is to set the religious temperature of the house. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. And so when God is looking at the religious well-being of the house, he says, Adam, where art thou? Because it's a representative government. And so as, the rep, as a representative goes, oftentimes those representative commensurate. And so if the, 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 the religious leader is unfaithful, oftentimes the ones that are represented, they suffer for it. And that's what we see here. That's all I want to say on that. These particular 12 guys are actually faithful. I want to say a few things about the, 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 the nature of these 12 religious representatives. They're plucked out from each of, of the 12 tribes. That means the entire body of God's people, they're being represented. And all of the offerings means that the entire church will be atoned for. Uh, this is uh, Acts 20 and also uh, Ephesians 5 principle that God provides for all of the atonement for all of his elect people. But the whole church is being atoned for. But the, the thing I want to bring out about these 12 li- uh, uh, men are, are this. They represent the 12 tribes, but they come out from the brothers. This is a Deuteronomy 18.15. Christ is going to be, be like a, a prophet like Moses, plucked out from the, his fellow Jews. He's one of them. It speaks to the solidarity of the representative. And it speaks to the the filial nature of the representative. It's not just that you're one of them, you're kin, you're family. These men represent their family, and that's these representatives. This is why, this is why the, the, the nuclear family is so important. I talked about, I felt bad for this morning because such, this morning was such a heavy sermon. I never apologize for the word of God, but it is a very, very heavy sermon. And I mentioned that spiritual warfare with the corruption of sexual sexuality and so on. But it, it, one of the reasons the family, the nuclear family, is so attacked by, the, by Satan in the church and out of the church is because as you can destroy the, the head, you can corrupt religiously the entire body, wife and kids and everything. You can destroy generations if you can destroy the nuclear family. And why is the nuclear family so important that father will work 100 hours a week if he needs to. Why? Because that's his wife. Why will he work at the factory 80 hours a week with his lunch bucket and not eat? Because that's his kids. And if you say, well, the state will take care of him, the state doesn't care for my kids. You see what I mean? So this is the filial nature. You tell a man, you have to fight for your wife and kids? Boy, howdy, you're about to let loose a lion. Is that right? So it's the 
filial nature. It's the solidarity of the servant that says, I will be faithful. Why? Because I'm fighting for my wife and kids. I'm fighting for my kin. I'm fighting for my family. I represent them religiously. If this was just people we didn't even know, oh, it, it does not aid to our religious fidelity. But if it's, if, why should I be faithful? Because it's your wife. Because it's your kids. They are yours. Bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Same principle. So it's the, and, and these representatives are fellow sinners. They need the sacrificial system that they're representing. So these people are not only the solidarity, their filial relationship, they are sinners saved by grace, just like the ones that they represent. And that adds to the way that they practice the religion. You can't have an angel preach the gospel because angels, if they lose their first estate, they can never be redeemed. It's only a redeemed man that can tell you about the goodness of redemption. That's why angels can't preach. And I would add, that's why Pharisees can't preach either, because they don't know the goodness of redemption. They look, look at you, look at you. No, you don't understand. The moment you realize that you are a redeemed sinner, it's only by the mercy seat. How is your representation affected after that? with brokenness, with gentleness, with contrition, owning the Christ that you present. All of these things are represented here by these uh, leaders. So men of Israel, brothers, kin, uh, fellow sinners saved by grace, and just as leaders can uh, work ill by their infidelity, so too these leaders can can promote good, the, the, question 151 of the larger catechism, I quote it all the time, the aggravation of sin. For us as religious leaders, and, whatever, and we all are to some degree, we, we can do real, positive, body, soul good to the people that look to us for, for religious guidance, whether they're your children, young or old. It's a little dicey when the kids get older, I get it, but we still can do good for them, body and soul, as moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers, if we can hurt them religiously and morally by being a bad example, we can help them. Our brother Tony said his father showed him how to live for Jesus, and I'll never forget this. Our brother Tony said, as his father was dying, he showed me how to die for Jesus. I learned learned the doctrine of marriage watching my father be devoted to my mother. My dad wasn't a Christian. He was devoted to my mother. My view of marriage came from watching my father. And I taught it to my son and to my daughter. So think of it as a motive to be faithful to the Lord. And the last thing I want to say is, God is the one that structures all these offerings. He says, I want you to bring thus and so, and I want you to bring it when you to bring it. God is an orderly God. I mentioned this in the beginning. No one just gives to God what we feel like giving to God, because you're going to hear depart. God only accepts what he prescribes, which is what's called the regulative principle of worship. Well, maybe we'll do, we'll do a study on that versus the normative principle of worship, which is what the Lutherans believe. But that's another study. The, 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 I want to end with this point. God says to all of these people, bring this thing, that thing, this thing, this thing. They're an agricultural people, so they bring precious metals, and they bring animals, and they bring grains. So God has them give a portion of their material goods. It's obviously costly, is is what's going on. So God says to these leader servants, representatives, 
here's the duty that I'm prescribing and I want you to obey. And what do we find that they do? They obey. Is it First Samuel chapter 15, I think? Obedience is better than sacrifice. They actually obey. I know this is a stunner. We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith always comes with, with obedience. That's the book of James 2.14 to 26. So if you say, you know, I totally believe in Jesus, I'm just never going to obey. Read Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? These people show that they love the Lord by their obedience to the Lord. And when the Lord says, and this is, I know, I don't think I've ever preached a tithe sermon. I'm not against it. If it's in the text, I suppose I would. It just gets so squeamish. I mean, I would as a minister because it's how I eat and pay the rent. So it seems like you could be self-serving if you preach it. I don't know. Other ministers are not squeamish about it. (laughs) I'm squeamish about it. But God says, I want you in obeying me to these leaders, and no doubt the people had a part to pay in it, I want you to give me a portion of your earthly wealth. Now, people will believe up a storm until you say, will you support the ministry of the church? Wait a minute. (laughs) You want some of my cash? It's my money. It's my money. We're God's. Our time is God's. Our stuff is God's. Everything is God's. And God says, I want you to obey me. You see those five critters over there? I want five of them. I want five of them. I want some of that. I want some of this. Remember this morning we looked at the the pagans in Ephesus? They came to believe in Jesus. And what did they do to to $50,000 worth of books? They gave it to the Lord. What do these guys do? God says, I I want you to give me of your material wealth. Obey me. Now remember, remember, they're, they're religious representatives. All of the people they're representing are watching them do what? It's all God's. It's all God's. It's all God's. Beloved, it's the the holiness of God. And then it is the good example of these 12 religious leaders who are listening to the servant of God, who are obeying the servant of God, and setting examples of faithfulness um, before the people of God. Uh, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.